All right, we are studying the Psalms, selected Psalms. We're in a series called Psalm Sundays, and today we're uh, going to start a series within the series with Psalm 120. So open your Bible or navigate on your device, uh, follow along at transcript.calvaryhanford.com, or whatever you want to do, but get to Psalm 120. It's a short psalm, but with a lot to teach us. The topic we're going to find there, the psalmist finds himself imperiled by liars and their lies. So the title of our message is, Gonna lie now, lying sly now, gonna lie, lie, lie. Rocky. Send me titles. Father, thank you so much for giving us this uh, brief amount of time uh, to study your word. Uh, We pray that it would be valuably spent uh, with your Holy Spirit here to teach us and be our teacher, that you would communicate to us, Lord, uh, that we were made to be loved by you and that your love is a precious thing that we can always count on. And within that love is grace to sustain us and mercy, Lord, to uh, draw us forward and everything else we read about in your word. If there's someone here who has doubts about your love for them, I pray that you would put them uh, in a situation where they'll put their doubts aside. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know the Lord, I pray, Lord, that that person would come to know you today in the quiet of his or her heart. Be with us, Lord, as we work through these verses. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said, amen. Traveling is better with a playlist. You might create a playlist of your favorite artist or artists, maybe your favorite songs by various artists, or you might put together a playlist based on a theme or based on your destination. Let's say you're going on vacation. Star Trek fans will recall that before he would embark on the first successful warp flight, Zephram Cochran insisted on playing Born to be Wild. When we first meet Star-Lord in Guardians of the Galaxy, he switches on his Walkman to play Awesome Mix, Volume 1. When we are on our way to the happiest place on Earth, we have a playlist of all the ride and attraction theme songs. Gets us ready, especially grim, grinning ghosts. There's just nothing quite as good as that. Well, maybe soaring over California, but anyway. Or it's a soaring over the world now, right? What an idiot. We should start over. Israel had a national playlist. They are the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134. They received this title because the Israelite pilgrims sang them as they traveled from their homes all over the land and ascended to the temple in Jerusalem for the annual feasts. If you are in Christ, it should not come as a surprise that you are a pilgrim. You've either read that or somebody told you that. The Apostle Peter twice labels all believers pilgrims in his first letter. And the writer to the Hebrew Christians in chapter 11 identifies us with previous generations of pilgrims who are looking for the heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. Since we are fellow travelers, the Psalms of Ascent would make a great playlist for us too as long as we keep them in context. And let's not forget that our Lord Jesus sang them many, many times in his incarnation as he would visit the temple He did it in his epic journey from heaven to earth and then back to heaven. John Wayne once asked, think you can make it, pilgrim? The road's not easy. It's fraught with peril. When describing the road, the apostle Paul wrote, 
in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Yes, you can and will make it, pilgrim, because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, bringing you all the way home despite the imperiled life that you live. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you are imperiled by liars and lies. And number two, you can be impervious to liars and lies. Let's take a look first of all at our peril. Now the Psalm of Ascents begin with the pilgrim describing a primary peril. It's in verse two where he says, lying lips and a deceitful tongue. My first reaction to that was, seriously, Lies and liars are the peril he was most concerned about. After reading that list from the Apostle Paul, all the terrible things that can befall us. Uh, But this puts it in perspective. In the Gospel of John, Jesus described the devil by saying he was a liar and the father of lies. It was his lying in the Garden of Eden that tempted Adam and Eve to overthrow the authority of God, thinking they would become like God. All of the disease and destruction and death that we experience on the earth today are the consequences of that liar telling that lie. In Revelation 12, 9, the devil is called the deceiver of the whole world. In the book of Acts, the apostle Peter says to a lying disciple, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? When the psalmist talks about liars and their deceitful tongues, he isn't only talking about people mistreating you. Sure, that's part of it, but he's talking about something far more sinister, the fact that demonic lies surround you on your pilgrimage. They are everywhere, literally. Maybe this will connect a little bit. Let's say you have conflict in your marriage. Well, it stems from the original lie that our parents believed in the Garden of Eden, that they could be like God. It brought sin into their uh, lives. And you remember one of the first things that happened when God came to try and reconcile that situation, is Adam blamed Eve. And they had some uh, conflict. I wonder what happened. I'd like to hear that conversation after the Lord left. (laughs) Hey, by the way, earlier, did I hear you say that it was my fault? Well, you said it was the devil's fault, so there. You idiot. I'm sure they were more spiritual than that. The help, now listen, here's the problem, or the situation though, is the help you need for your marriage is going to be biblical truth, not another one of the devil's lies. And a lot of times people, uh, you're out in the world and maybe you're having marital problems, people do, and maybe you start sharing with somebody and maybe that somebody's not a believer, they're not going to give you biblical advice, they're not going to tell you to endure or hang in there, oh they will for a while. But they'll reach their limit pretty quick and say, well, you know, divorce is an option. Everybody I know that's gotten divorced is super happy. And their kids are great. And so just be careful out there. The help you need for your marriage is truth, not lies. Today, the devil's lies have undermined biblical marriage. As we're fond of telling you, marriage is heterosexual and monogamous between one biological man and one biological woman. The obliteration of this standard is a major reason why human society all over the world is crumbling. So people get together and they say, we have problems. 
problems in the inner city, problems in the suburbs, problems in organizations, problems here and there. What are we going to do? I would come as a Christian and say, well, the the root of all these problems is the destruction of the nuclear family, not just the dissolving of it, but the absolute government assault against the nuclear family as defined in the Bible. Well, yeah, but we're never going to deal with that, so how are we going to deal with the problems? Well, I guess you're just going to put Band-Aids on your problems because this is how God structures a society, and if you want to build it some other way, it's just not going to work. This is how it's built. It has to have a foundation. Have you ever built something without a foundation? It doesn't last very long. And so that's why our societies are crumbling. Verse 1, a song of ascents. It's called that. They're all called that because any journey to Jerusalem is up because Jerusalem is on a hill. A song of ascents. In my distress, I cried to the Lord and he heard me. The cry that the Lord heard was verses 2 through 7. It's the psalmist's prayer. In our distress, I'd wager most of us do go first to the Lord. We cry out to him. So I'm not going to be that person that says, why don't you go to the Lord? Well, I do. I'm sure you do too. You're Christians. You love the Lord. But it can be difficult to wait on the Lord. That's where the problems come in. That's when we might be tempted to seek a worldly solution or settle for non-biblical help. You need to develop a healthy caution and a, a, a patience in waiting. You you need to do patient waiting for the Lord to work in your life. The psalmist knew that the Lord heard him. Jesus hears you the first time and every other time you cry out. This is a statement of spiritual contentment. You can be content and rest in the fact that God hears you. Any believer always has immediate access to the throne of God where he'll receive grace and mercy in time of need. And so this is a contentment. Lord, I prayed, I cried out, I know you heard me. Nothing could keep you from hearing me. I'm glad that the keep calm craze is mostly over. Are you still using that? Keep calm and comb your hair. Keep calm and wear a mask. Keep calm and anything. Those things are funny or they're intriguing the first two or three thousand times. And then after that you get tired of them. But if we were going to do one, we would do a keep content series. We would say, keep content and wait for Jesus. Psalm 120, verse 2. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Now, this speaks to us on a few different levels. For one thing, we're reminded that on our pilgrimage, we will be distressed by other people, even by believers who lie to us and, um, in that sense, are liars. To put it simply, you will be hurt by others, and some of the wounds may never completely heal. Like Frodo, after he was stabbed by the witch king of Angmar on Weathertop, it's a wound that will always hurt. For another thing, all of us could pray, Lord, keep me from having lying lips and a deceitful tongue. It's a given that you and I will also hurt others. You know, it's not just us that gets hurt. We are participants in hurting others as well. We don't want to do it, we don't mean to do it, but we do it. For a third thing, we could interpret these words as the psalmist asking the Lord to shield him from being interfered with or influenced by a world ruled by the devil that is full of liars and lies. Literally, the psalm is about uh, the journey to Jerusalem, which is a picture of the journey to heaven, as it were, or the new Jerusalem, we would say. And the psalmist, at this point, there's really nothing positive in this psalm, but it's not a negative psalm. He's just describing the conditions before we get to heaven. We're in a fallen earth surrounded by lies that come from the devil, the father of lies. And so it's a dangerous place. Skip down to verse 5 for a minute. We'll come back. 
Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Meshech was to the far north of Jerusalem. Kedar was in the south. This is the psalmist's way of saying from coast to coast. It was a lyrical way of saying that he was surrounded. We are on the earth in unredeemed bodies which still have propensities to sin. The world system as a whole is ruled by the God of this world. His lies, the doctrines of demons, assail us on every side, seeking nothing less than our total destruction on the road home. Now, the devil's assaults may be pleasant. We sometimes forget this. By that I mean the devil may offer you wealth or power or popularity. All we have to do is disobey Jesus, but just a little, and he'll forgive us anyway, won't he? And so the devil will come and he'll whisper these things in your ear, maybe not this plainly, but there will be things that are wonderful and seem positive and and a blessing to you. But there's that still small voice of the spirit holding you back, that check in your spirit. You somehow know that it's not the direction you ought to go. But there's a part of you that says, you know, goes back to the original lie in the garden and says, well, you know, maybe I'm going to be autonomous in this one. And so a lot of these things are, are missed because we, we always think that something bigger or seemingly better is better for us spiritually, and that's just not true. It can be, might be. doesn't mean you can never leave your situation, get a new job, move out of Hanford or anything like that. But you need to be careful because a lot of times we're just following our own will and not the Lord's. If there's never been a time in your life when you had to turn something down that sounded like it would be better, and you did it for your family or for your church or for a ministry, that's what I'm talking about. The assaults might be Job-like, robbing you of family and health. Those are the ones we normally think of. The diagnosis that the doctor gives you and you think, what just happened? Or a friend, you get the phone call that somebody is gone. And, um, you know, those are the things that we think about the most. Those are, in one sense, I don't want to be insensitive, but they can be easier to deal with because at least you know for sure that they're evil. While we're on the topic of his liars, we could name the founders of every religion. Everything that is not biblical Christianity is a lie And so the founders like Zoroaster and Siddhartha and Confucius, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Charles Tace Russell, L. Ron Hubbard, Sun Young Moon, and of course, Ajunta Paul. He was the first dark lord of the Sith. (laughs) Took me a while to research that out. It's hard to get into the history of the Sith, but anyway. That's the last joke in this list, unless something comes to me. All godless philosophies are lies propounded by liars, nihilism, existentialism, stoicism, hedonism, Marxism, Taoism, rationalism, humanism, relativism, atheism, and any other isms that are not biblical Christianity. There is a seemingly endless list of lying psychotherapies, gestalt, Freudian, behaviorism, Maslowian, psychodynamics, cognitive, etc., etc. They were proposed by godless men like Carl Rogers and B.F. Skinner and Sigmund Freud and Abraham Maslow. Following these liars and lies will lead a person not to spiritual contentment, but to a greater selfishness. There's a verse I use a lot. You've, you've heard me use it a lot in our prayers here, our public prayers. It's that God can discern between the soul and the spirit. It's found in the book of Hebrews. No one else, nothing else can discern between your soul and the spirit. And just think of it as a deep place in your heart, in your being, 
that only God can reach and only God can minister to. And so if you're laying on some Freudian couch or you're going through some L. Ron Hubbard Scientology ritual, you're not getting to that place in your heart, and you can't. You never can because there's no power to do that in any of these other systems of philosophy or psychotherapy or uh, religion. But God can, and he can affect real change and transformation in that place. Biblical Christianity isn't just the best choice. It's the only choice because only God knows you. Nobody knows you like Jesus. And that's what you need. You need somebody to... Because, you know, you watch these movies or on TV and they, they get to the bottom of it. Finally, something comes out and this is the root of it. They took your jack-in-the-box and threw it in the field. <laughs> I can't tell that story again. Somebody else will have to. But I will say this. A marvelous couple in our fellowship bought me a jack-in-the-box. It's in my office. I was going to bring it out one day. Maybe I will. One day when I feel down. So now when I feel down, I play my jack-in-the-box. It's because my, my dad threw mine out the window while we were coming from Connecticut to California. It was the playlist of our trip, I thought. It was an early, early one-song playlist. All right. I think we're done. <laughs> Following these liars, uh, you're not going to be led to the heavenly city, but to a, an alternate location, and that is the lake of fire. The Apostle Paul insisted that, and I quote, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. I'm right on the edge of losing it. Our thoughts go to spiritual warfare against the devil and his allies. But Paul clarified what he meant by this. He said, we cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Liars and their lies are what we are casting down. It is the doctrine of demons that we are to face, not necessarily demons themselves. We don't do battle with demons. There's angels for that. And... and, Mighty angels having a hard time. Gabriel had a hard time in the book of Daniel with the prince of Persia. He had to tap out and ask for Michael to come, who's, what I can tell, he's like the Arnold Schwarzenegger of angels. He's Mr. Universe for, you know, umpteen times. And he wrestled with the prince of Persia. So I don't want to do no demon wrestling. Uh, I'm not going after any demons. I'm not going to ask anybody what the demon's name is. That's, oh gosh, pop culture. But I'm in far more danger from the doctrine of demons, that everything that's around me that is telling me about a non-biblical worldview, in fact, many non-biblical worldviews that I can choose from, that people somehow think all mean the same thing. At least as Christians, we're willing to say, no, this is it. You're either a Christian or you're not. There's no truth other than Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So many other of these groups are saying, hey, this is great. Uh, What you're doing is great, too, as long as you believe. No, it's not going to work. You know, all religions, all philosophies, all psychotherapies, they're on a road that leads to God, but it leads to the great white throne judgment, not to heaven. And so we need to be careful about what's around us. My soul is well too long with one who hates peace. Psalm 3520, we're informed that the world around us is inhabited by nonbelievers who, and I quote, do not speak peace. They devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. Today, this idea illustrates itself. Or maybe I should say it's being illustrated all around us. 
violence is now rampant. No matter what stand you take on the current turmoil in the world, Psalm 3520 summarizes this, nobody wants to speak peace, they want to stir up strife and war. And that's the human heart, that's the spirit, that's the place that God needs to get to. And so if you're out there in the world, we are, everybody wants to talk about mask, no mask, vaccine, no vaccine, et cetera, et cetera, everybody's got opinions, that's fine. Try and preface your talk with something about the gospel because we need to speak peace. And it doesn't really speak peace to, to win the argument as to whether you know, we believe the governor is right or wrong. Talk about that all you want. I, like, I love it. I listen to it. I think it's a lot of creative criticism. But uh, <laughs> have you seen the meme where Jerry Seinfeld, is? it's a picture of Seinfeld, and it says, uh, Hello, Newsom." <laughs> One of my favorite. That's the best thing that's come out of this crisis, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, you know what you could do is say, well, you know, uh, as a Christian, I have a little bit of a different perspective on this, and then go into what you think, and maybe throw that seed out there, and maybe somebody will say, what do you mean? As a what, what, what does Christianity have to do with this? Oh, I'm glad you asked, and construct an answer because we are for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. We need to talk about the gospel. That's how we promote and support peace. It's a well-worn old saying, but there'll be no peace without the who? Prince of Peace. I mean, you know, it's an old bumper sticker that's faded on some cars and junkyards now, but it's true. No, No peace until the Prince of Peace. Only peace with God will save our societies. The mythological sirens sang to passing ships. Their songs would mesmerize the sailors, draw them into the rocks upon which they would be dashed and destroyed. Liars' lies are a siren's call seeking to shipwreck your faith. In our case, the sirens aren't confined to one location. Their songs surround us. Their songs are a worldly playlist playing on a continuous loop. It's like elevator music all the time, you know. There's all these different siren calls seeking to lead you astray. Ulysses had his men tie him to the mast and then put wax in their ears. That way they would not be drawn aside. They wouldn't be able to hear his uh, yearnings to draw aside, but he would be able to hear the siren song and live. It got me thinking and wondering if I was tied to some mast, if, if that's a thing that you can understand that there's something about the world or in the world, some habit or hobby or some behavior or, uh, you know, whether it's pleasant or sinful, where I've tied myself to the mast and think that I can't be drawn into a shipwreck. Uh, Let's at least check ourselves for that because being shipwrecked is no fun. You can be impervious to liars and lies, verses 3 and 4. Now, you have been tripped up by lies, I'm sure, and you have lied. If you say you haven't lied, you're a liar. And so I've got you. You're not impervious to liars and lies, but you can be to the extent you yield to the indwelling Holy Spirit. As we teach or read God's word, we should concentrate more on who and what we already are. Too much of evangelical Christianity sounds like self-help. There are steps so we can achieve God's goals for us. If you peruse the shelves of a Christian bookstore, it seems like you're on an expedition to summit a spiritual Everest. And you're never quite going to get there unless you have this author's new book that tells you how. 
The Apostle Paul insisted, and I quote, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then he also noted, God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so from God's point of view, even though I'm on earth in this uh, body of flesh that's still propensity to sin, I'm also seated in heaven with Christ, and every spiritual blessing that you can think of is available to me in my walk on the earth. And so on the one hand, I know I will lie again, but I know that I don't have to because I can follow the leading of the Spirit. Here's an insightful paraphrase of Romans 6, 1, or 6.11. Rather. This is from the Message Bible. I really like this. It says, from now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You're dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. And so just think of it that way. Everything that's not biblical, it's like a dead language. It's like Charlie Brown's parents. And we need to really begin to identify the philosophies and the isms of the world that are want-was and not be bringing them in. The church loves to bring in the world. Uh, When I first came here 30 years ago, the big thing was psychology. The church couldn't wait to bring psychology into the church. And what they would do is they'd say, well, the Bible teaches sanctification. Well, uh, Maslow teaches a kind of sanctification. He calls it self-actualization. He found what the Bible writers found. And I'm like, pulling my hair out. He didn't find anything. It's a lie. God says, be ye holy as I am holy. And B.F. Skinner says, well, I mean, that's the truth. So you can talk about this stuff. You can study. I know you go to college. You have to do comparative religions and stuff like that. Name your report, wah wah, and you know, embed Lucy in, in there doing something. And her advice is better than any of the advice you get from a counselor, anyway. But anyway, I digress. Verse three: What shall be given to you, or what shall be done to you, you false tongue, sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree? The title of the epic finale to the Avengers saga came from something Dr. Strange said in Infinity War. He said, we are in the end game now. He saw what was going to happen over the next few years, and he saw the only scenario in which humanity would ultimately triumph. In order to get to that victory, humanity must wait. Half the population of the universe was turned to dust by a snap. Much suffering ensued until our relentless surviving heroes found that one way to reverse the snap. Beloved, we are in God's end game. We know in quite a bit of detail what is going to happen in the future. The resurrection and rapture of the church is imminent. The seven-year great tribulation is on tap. Then the second coming of Jesus to end it. Then the millennial kingdom of God on earth. Then the great white throne judgment of God. Then the creation of a new earth and new heavens. Finally, eternity with Jesus in the new Jerusalem. It's God's end game. But as we wait, it's preceded by much suffering. It's a plan that is, it's the only plan there is. And we look at that and we think it's taking so long from the Garden of Eden until now, six, seven thousand years. 
not to say that it's not significant, but with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. I don't think we understand the, the difficulty, if I can use that word, of saving lost humanity. I don't think we understand the, the, the power and the breadth and the depth of sin and what really happened in the Garden of Eden. It was so serious that God said the only way that this can be rectified is if I come as a man, if God is incarnate and then die for your sins in your place. And you know what, guys? Since that's the only possible plan, that's not going to happen this afternoon. It's going to take as long as it takes. And now in the Bible, we have the Bible and we, see, we, we don't know how much longer there is, but we know what it takes. And every step of the way, God providing for his plan to bring Jesus to earth, to have him crucified and raised from the dead and to bring him a second time, that's what it takes for God to get to the end game. I want to go off on a slight tangent. You'll appreciate it, I'm sure. (laughs) You will. Many Bible teachers and pastors are telling their people the prophecies of the end game are spiritual, that they are allegorical or that they have mostly been fulfilled in the first century. This is very popular right now. Especially under attack is the pre-tribulation rapture of the church that we teach and believe in. One seemingly powerful argument I keep hearing is that no one ever spoke of the rapture of the church until a guy named John Nelson Darby in the 1800s, not very long ago. One critic said it this way, rapture doctrine did not exist before John Darby invented it in 1830 A.D., Before it popped into John Darby's head, no one had ever heard of a secret rapture doctrine. Here's another quote. The fact that John Nelson Darby invented the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine around 1830 is unquestionably true. All attempts to find evidence of this wild doctrine before 1830 have failed. So think of that. You're out talking to a friend, Christian friend, and you say, hey, I get so excited at our church. Our church is so great. Because we have this weekly prophecy update and we see how things are headed, you know, for the end times. And they say, well, the fact that John Darby invented the pre-trib rapture is unquestionably true. The church never believed it until this crazy guy popped into his head. And you think, oh my, that does sound terrible. What, What does that mean? Let me read something else to you. And therefore, when in the end the church shall suddenly be caught up It is said there should be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning and neither shall be. So even with a non-scholarly brain like mine, this author says you're going to be caught up and then there will be some kind of great tribulation. Those words were written by Irenaeus. He was bishop of what is now Lyon in France. They're found in his work Against Heresies. He didn't write it in the 1800s but in the 180s, as in 180 A.D., a mere 150 years after Jesus rose from the dead, about 100 years after the Apostle Paul was martyred, 65 years after the Apostle John died, he was teaching the rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And so when someone tells you the early church had no doctrine of the rapture, at best, given the benefit of the doubt, at best they are just ignorant. They don't know. And you know what's funny about this? You can find this out in five minutes on the Internet. That's what I love about the internet. You can check everything. Irenaeus, doctrine of the rapture against heresies. Bam! There it is. And so a lot of times we just repeat what other people have told us. 
It doesn't even flatter me if you repeat what I say. You should look it up for yourself and uh, be sure before you tell somebody, especially something like, well, clearly the rapture is a made-up doctrine. Yeah, no, it's not. The church believed it until the church didn't believe it because it went off on a tangent in the Middle Ages and thought very differently about the coming of the Lord. Hey, maybe I would have been led astray too if I was a part of the Roman Catholic Church at that time, wealthy, healthy, uh, commanding governments. Uh, it's, it seemed like maybe this was the kingdom. It wasn't. It isn't. Jesus is coming. Let's read verses 3 and 4 again. What shall be given to you or what shall be done to you, you false tongue, sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree? This is a poetic way of saying the enemy will be defeated and he'll be subject to fire. And we know that the father of lies will be defeated and he will be burned by a fire that cannot be quenched in the lake of fire. And those who have resisted the grace of God to save them will join the devil and his angels in that lake of fire. Uh, earlier I was joking around with the baby and I said, you know, most of you are Christians. But the truth is there's probably one or two people in here, maybe a half a dozen, that don't know the Lord in a saving way. You're under condemnation until you come to know the Lord. But the good news is his grace is extended to you to free your will so that you can make a decision to accept him as your Lord and Savior and be justified. He can, just, he can declare you righteous even though you're not. He'll take your sin upon himself and give you his righteousness and you can join the rest of us on our way to heaven. And you can do that in your heart right now without anybody even praying for you. But if you want to come forward at the end, we'll have guys up front who would love to pray with you. The more I focus on earthly things, elevating their importance, the more susceptible I will be to the world of lies surrounding me. I just get sucked deeper in until I almost can't see things anymore. The psalmist was suggesting that I focus on end things, on endings, that I focus on my destination more than anything else, allowing my heavenly future to dictate my decisions. Our destination is the new Jerusalem. In Revelation, we read, the angel carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. In the Old Testament, we read, the Lord your God in the midst, the Lord will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. And this is the part I love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So the Bible tells us that God sings over his people. Now, in context... The prophet Zephaniah was talking about God singing over Israel after he restores them in the millennial kingdom. I hope you won't think I think it, I don't think it's wrong to think that God sings over the church and over each of us who are in Christ. I mean, could you imagine, you know, if he sang over Israel, why wouldn't he sing over us? It seemed like it'd be unfair. Say, God, would you sing over me? No. Sorry. I only sing over Israel. Just not in his character. And so God's lyrical, he's singing over me. And so here's one way of looking at this. If I'm following God's leading, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and he's leading me into good works that he has before ordained that I would discover and do in his power, each of those, let's say, experiences or events has its own song. Its own song that God is singing over me to bless me and to empower me and to fulfill me and to all these other things that I could. And so God is singing these songs. Then I move into another area of my life and God is singing a different song. And by the time I'm done with this life, either through death or by the rapture, 
I have my own playlist. But it's not songs that I chose, and it's not by a favorite artist. They're songs that God chose, and it's him singing to me. Because I was made to be loved by him, right? We sing that. And that's one of the ways that he's going to love us. And so I can't wait to hear that playlist as I approach the holiest city above the earth. Let's pray.